I'd like to start this morning by sharing with you a secret. I am, by nature, deeply rebellious. What? That wasn't a secret? I'm shocked. I thought that was the best kept secret I had. How many of you are deeply rebellious by nature? Yeah. You see, I think God actually planted in our heart a radical nature. And I think he did so on purpose. I've been watching the events of Pope Benedict's death. And I actually see in the life of Benedict a bit of that radical nature. He wasn't known as the, you know, that, that kind of our current Pope is you know, more along the lines of liberation coming from Argentina and himself being a Jesuit. But for Benedict to actually resign and to say, I can't do this anymore, was a profound act of rebellion against a system that he knew needed to change. I love the movie, The Two Popes. It's on Netflix. If you've never seen it, I encourage you to go watch it. It's really an interesting unpacking of the story of that transition. And as Francis was being encouraged to continue in the story, and how much of it is true, we don't know. Netflix is famous for kind of shaping the story as a narrative. But we get the sense that he was ready to retire, and he was asking permission to do so. And the movie unpacks his story, how he wrestled with the juntas, with the, the military government, and how there was this collusion between the church and government, and many of the Catholic priests were, were standing up against that. And, and Francis at the time was trying to kind of hold this intention. And he'd come to a conclusion in his life that he had sinned. That he had made the wrong choices. And so in his mind, he thought that disqualified him for the, for the papacy. Benedict talks him in, of course, and this idea of resistance and faith is now rooted at the top of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm not a liberation theologist. I, I come from a school of integral mission. I actually think we don't need to look at Karl Marx to get a sense of what we're called to in the way of seeking justice and freedom for people. I think the biggest radical of them all was Jesus Christ. And in the words of Jesus Christ, we find that nature that stands against the powers, against the principalities, that calls us to seek, to pour out our lives for those on the margins. If you read the red letters alone, you will not end up anywhere but yourself a radical. And I've seen this again and again and again. This call to push deeper into our faith. To connect it to the bigger issues of our world. And to stop living as if my confession is a private matter between me and God. 
I don't need marks. I need Jesus. This week I've been reading the words of Walter Brueggemann. And Brueggemann is an Old Testament theologian, himself a radical. I love Walter Brueggemann. He makes me uncomfortable. And so this morning I'm going to make you uncomfortable. And you're going to blame Walter Brueggemann. He calls for moral action in the real world. And today is my annual sermon on money. Now you're wishing you hadn't been here this morning. I even changed it up a little bit. It's normally the first sermon of the year and I teased you. And then all of you who weren't here last week came this week and whew, I escaped the annual sermon on giving. And <laughs> No, you didn't. But this morning I want us to push in a little deeper. Because money matters for moral action. The early church congregations paid attention to the poor. And in the 6th century, this changed. As the church became increasingly the domain of the wealthy and not the poor. It became private about wealth and turned heavenly in its hope. And so this brought about an abrupt change in the way the church conducted itself. Because the wealthy didn't want their money to be subjected to the needs of the poor. And so they began to do two things. They began to build vast mausoleums and great cathedrals as a display of their opulence and their wealth. An outward sign of God's blessing of this decision to internalize their piety. And the second thing they did is they began to other the clergy. And what I mean by that is they set apart the priests. They were up on a pedestal. They weren't part of the people. And if I could say one thing about liberation theologians, the Catholic priests who went through the military juntas of the 70s and 80s in Latin America, they stood with the people. They rejected the othering. They rejected the separation of the clergy from the, from the lower classes and lived their lives with dirt on their feet. The same dirt that covered the feet of the poor that they sought to serve. But you see, we in the Western church still are preoccupied with matters that are solely focused on internal piety. And our money matters for our spirituality and our discipleship. Walter Brueggemann contends that this issue continues into our day as the contemporary Western church continues to resist this engagement in real-life material issues of faith. That we're content to settle for an innocent religion, leaving the church weak, lacking in moral passion for the great issues of our day. Do you agree with that? Do you agree we lack passion for the great moral issues of our day? Silence. 
nobody wants to answer that. Yeah, I want to answer. Okay. Okay. We have let issues happen in our society. Jane said euthanasia. What was the other one? Abortion. So we've got massive moral issues that we're afraid to engage with. And I think part of the reason why we're afraid to engage with them is as Christians, we don't necessarily agree on them. I can guarantee you, just in this group right here, on just those two issues that Jane has named, we don't have an agreement on it. Because we have not learned how to disagree in love. And our culture is increasingly becoming polarized and we're afraid to engage in these issues and it comes through the gentle reproach every time your pastor steps into a political issue. And so in many ways, when I don't preach on these issues because I'm afraid of stirring things up and upsetting you and having yet another family leave the church, I'm in collusion to this weakness. And I'm convicted about it. You see, as I read Walter Brueggemann, I became uncomfortable because my experience in Latin America serving with the poor churches, they don't believe that this is a private issue. They don't hesitate to address the larger issues of the day, to seek justice, to root hope in this world and the action of Christ now and not just in some future hope that they do hope for, but they believe that the kingdom of God is capable of bursting through even now. Consider the message Jesus gave to the disciples in Luke 7. Go back to John. Tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached. Who? To the poor. Now. Right now. Not at some future date. A bursting through of God's power and passion for people today. Do we see this? kingdom of God breaking through into this world at this time. Hang out with churches in the global south. Talk to Brian Velasquez and you will hear messages of this challenging topic of life being preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and these people living in the margins knowing God loves them says this isn't all there is. I can have hope that God is going to rescue me for some future hope, but He's going to rescue me today. He's going to give me my daily bread. And because of this, they're convinced that Jesus' concern for material things ought to shape their concerns. Because that's good news. And I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, if you're poor and hungry, the good news is not some future hope. The good news is that Jesus loves you today and is going to meet your needs now. I've tried to preach the gospel to the hungry. They don't hear the message. If we do not meet those physical needs, they cannot hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think we live in a society that's increasingly trapped, not in hunger, although that exists here, 
to our shame. We have a society that is trapped in things that are, that are drawing their attention away from Jesus, and they cannot hear the good news until they see it is truly good for today. Their conviction is grounded and rooted in the good will of a Creator God that loves them enough to meet their needs today. It started when He sent His Son so that we could have abundant life. Not in the future, but today. And I need to confess to you, I agree with them cognitively, but I still live as if that's not true. But this is not to be confused with materialism. This is not a prosperity message. Because people are hurting. And so this morning, we're going to pick up this terribly challenging topic of money and how it's concerned with material aspects of our faith and the way we're called to engage with a world that's hurting. There's a show, another show on Netflix. I don't, I don't want to say that I always watch Netflix, but I might watch too much TV. There's another confession for you this morning. Last week I asked, what is the one thing that you can give up to make Jesus more of your focus this year? It might be Netflix for me. Maybe I'll ask you to hold me accountable to that. But nonetheless, there's this wonderful show on Netflix we watch called Young Sheldon. And it's a spinoff from The Big Bang Theory, and, and it's just, oh, I love Sheldon. He reminds me a lot of my son. Don't tell him I said that. And Sheldon and his sister, Missy, they, they, get a, they get news that there's not enough money coming into the church. And so they get a hold of the directory, and the two of them begin to call people in the directory to hound them about their tithes. Because Sheldon, being a, a, a realist and a, and a pragmatist, sees that you're to give 10%, and then he gets a hold of the giving ledger and finds out that this person's not giving 10%, and he calls them out, and he literally browbeats them, and it was the best giving Sunday of them all. And the pastor gets up front and praises God for the abundance of giving and Sheldon is put out because he didn't get any of the credit. Often I think we can live like that. But the truth is money is a useful vehicle. The church in this show needed it. And so Sheldon and his sister went and got it for them. But it's also a powerful symbol of influence, success, and virtue. It's the virtue of money where the spiritual power is held. Have you ever had that thought before about the virtue of money? The spiritual power of money? Jesus talks about the mastery of money in Matthew 6 when He says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. 
And so here's the main point today. If you remember nothing else, remember this question. Which master does your money serve? I'll ask that again. When you look at your dollars, to whom do they bow? Do they bow to the Creator God to serve His kingdom purposes? Or do they bow to the earthly powers to serve self? I'm not suggesting that it's not like you shouldn't have anything or you should cast off all wealth. That's not what this message is. I'm not asking you all to take a vow of poverty. I'm asking you to look and consider where your money is serving. When I was in Philippines, I had the joy of doing studies with uh, the Nazarene Seminary in, in, that, in that city. And the Nazarenes are, are Wesleyan in their thinking. It's a Wesleyan movement. And so you can't go very far without bumping into the theology of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And I think I see actually a lot of parallels in our world today and the church today to the world of the Wesley brothers, where the church was at, kind of where society was at. And I actually have been in conversation with several of my colleagues on the Nazarene side of, of, of Christianity about how they're trying to see how the way that discovery in John Charles Wesley and how it framed their approach to faith formation might have something to say for us today. And a very good friend of mine is actually working in Vancouver. He's the mission coordinator, international mission coordinator for the Nazarene Church. But he's actually working on creating these kind of house movements similar to what John and Charles Wesley did in order to try and answer some of these big material questions of life and how that should connect to our faith. It's not a church plant. It's very specifically not a church plant. He pushes these people into the local churches because what they want is they want to have times where they can have these really deep conversations, live this out in real time in the other six days, but then go back and influence the churches around the city. They don't want to become the circle of frozen chosen, so to speak, in this one spot. John Wesley asks the question, you may have heard this before, and this is what they would say to their people around the topic of money. Earn all you can. Give all you can. Save all you can. I think that begs the question in our modern society. How much is enough to earn? How little is enough to give? How might one invest one's savings? You see, if we just take those words at face value, which I think have shaped the Protestant ethic around money. Of course, we earn all we can. The Protestant work ethic has shaped our society in a profound way, in a good way. I'm not here to tear that down. But it has now exceeded what the early church fathers felt was even possible in our modern economy. Give all you can. Well, what does that look like when we have 
salary levels that far exceed anything they could possibly imagine. An individual earns today what an entire village would have earned in Wesley's time in real gross domestic product. Save all you can. What does that mean in our way of being when our savings isn't just putting it on deposit with a local bank, but we're investing, and that investment goes all over the world. And we've seen the way there is so much entanglement in Europe around the war between Russia and the Ukraine and how we're stuck where Europe is still having to rely on Russian gas and trying to extract themselves from that and we can't really apply pressure in one area because it will impact us in another area. What is an ethical form of investment? Earn all you can. See, we have the capacity to accumulate endlessly with no limits or restraints. In our culture, work has become a passion and the accumulation of wealth and obsession maybe even an addiction. And I see so often that we've ceased to be human because we've stripped ourselves of the good things that life was meant to give us as we drive in this passionate obsession to earn a little bit more money, to get a little bit more stuff. And the deeper question is, what about those who lack the ability to earn? Minorities, disabled, those who don't have access to well-paid work. There's little in our society to ensure earning opportunities for, for so many people. So now when we start talking about money, and if we want to actually look at the moral action of money and the virtue of money and start paying attention as God's people to the bigger issues of money, we start to ask ourselves, we, we have an unequal society. Is that okay? And I'm not telling you what you should think or believe. But I'm asking you to think about it and filter it through your faith. How does your money play a part in thinking through these larger issues of inequality in our system? Just ask our Filipino friends, come to the Headway Congregational Service this evening and ask them how many of them have advanced degrees and are working at Tim Hortons. Hmm. Too political? Save all you can. Most simply means to gather, store, and keep all the money you can. And it's a welcome barrier against consumerism, which is spend all you can. But there's a temptation for us to think that our savings are going to make us happy, better off. And I think Wesley, when you think about that, invites resistance to that. And it moves in an insistence against something where we place our faith outside of Jesus Christ. Last year, as I was going through the perpetual layoff and not sure about whether I would have a job 90 days from now, I spent eight months not sure if I'd have a job 90 days from now. Let me tell you, it isn't easy to do this. 
I'd be the first one to admit that there were moments that I was having private panic. I'm supposed to be the non-anxious presence for all of you, tell you it's all going to be okay. I would stand up here and tell you it's all going to be okay, and I'd go home and say, Lord, forgive me for lying. Because <laughs> I don't think it's going to be all okay. But it is going to be all okay, because our hope doesn't rest in what's in the bottom of the plate. We're called to give. That's the title of the sermon today. But my hope does not rest in your giving. Your discipleship depends on your giving. But my hope rests in Jesus Christ. My future rests in Jesus Christ. So does yours. So this isn't an attempt to manipulate you so that I can get more money. We want to push further into the spiritual power of money. And to do that, we have to consider the aspects of savings. What is our responsibility towards stewardship? People and planet. There's something called neoliberalism. And if you spend any time in the community development world, you'll learn to hate neoliberalism. Because neoliberalism is about stripping away all barriers to extract the maximum amount of wealth out of a place. Most of our Western governments are neoliberal in their thinking. This isn't big L liberal or big C conservative. It's, it's a philosophy where governments are designed not to protect their people from multinational corporations. They've been set up to collude with multinational corporations in order to give more freedom to extract the resources and wealth out of a place, even at the expense of people and planet. You spend any time thinking through the issue of money, you'll quickly arrive at the words of Jesus, and you'll become a radical, and then you'll get fired from your church. See, we don't store up for ourselves alone we store up for future generations. Sometimes our children in the way of our bequests of our estates. But also future generations that are going to live on this planet. I don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but we're called to be ready for him to come back tomorrow in another thousand years. You see, it's a bit irresponsible for us to just assume that Jesus is going to come back and fix all of this. He will. But this call is for us to actually care for people and planet. And so to save all you can means we're saving for our neighbors. And that includes widows and orphans, immigrants, the poor, people who have no power in our economy. Through sustained acts of charity, sharing our wealth and prosperity, stewarding the planet for future generations, loving people in the way that Jesus loved them, so that save all you can becomes more than a simple private accumulation of wealth. It becomes a wise deployment of resources for the sake of the common good. And so that leads us to the third point. Give all you can. The spirituality of money leads us to a generosity that's rooted in the consideration of God's good abundance and generosity toward us. 
Part of the reason why last year I was able to stick through that eight months was because I believe in the good, gracious, generous nature of God. At no point did I doubt that there was a purpose for this. Even in my panic, I was able to see that God was good and that I could trust in that. You see, when we put our faith and hope in the money that we saved, there's a virtue behind that. And it exists as a direct contradiction to what Jesus is saying. Put our trust in Him. And so really what we're talking about is to resist the impulse of mass accumulation. It is extraordinary. I, I don't want to quote figures because I'd be wrong. You know, 72% of all statistics are inaccurate. But the amount of wealth that's just sitting there right now in, in, the, in the 65 and above, it's incredible. It's, 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 it's stunning. I've seen numbers that just boggle my mind. And there's a whole generation that look like me that are going, oh, that money's coming soon. That's not where our hope lies. Yeah, it's a bit crass. My son is laughing at me. But that's what's happening. One more thought on giving, and I want to speak to the younger people here. There is a movement amongst our youth, kind of the millennials and younger, to support a cause. And they will respond to a need that would shame my generation and the boomers. Man, they can, they can rally behind a cause and put money in places where it's needed like nobody's business, and that is to be affirmed. But there's also a trend away from sustained and consistent giving in such a way that the budgets of many organizations, not just ours, are under threat. You see, what God is calling us to is a sustained support of good work so that that good work can continue. Supporting general funds isn't attractive, but it's important. And so to our younger generations, I'd really, cons- I'd really encourage you to consider faithful, sustained giving. You know, you're raising kids. You've got house payments to make, car payments. It is an expensive time in your life. I'm not going to stand here and say 10%. But when you give, even of the little, if yours is the two mites that the widow drops in the box, that will be pleasing to Jesus because it's done in faith. Do it in a sustained way. I promise you, it will change your heart and impact your discipleship in a significant way. Let's return to Walter Brueggemann because we haven't quite been offended enough today. As we think through resistance and moral action in the real world, it is important because our discipleship will be shaped by money more than just about anything else. And money unmanaged makes us look inward and we become nearsighted. 
I'm not talking about looking after your portfolio. I'm talking about not discerning which master your money serves. If we're to become a people of moral action in the real world, our money needs to be managed, focused, faithful. Because managed money changes us, makes us far-sighted, and makes us more responsive to the movement of God in this world. So here's the to-do. It's simple this week. Take an accounting of how you spend your money. Look at your bank statements. Pray about your budget. And ask line by line by line, does this serve God? I am not going to tell you how to do that. That is between you and God. I believe with all my heart in the priesthood of all believers. So as priests, sit down with your budget, sit down with your bank statements, and line by line by line, which master does this serve? Rejoice when it serves God. Receive grace if it doesn't. This call to give is a call to share our resources. It's a calling into a radical way of living, deeply countercultural. It is a kingdom oriented life, it is a non anxious life oriented away from the material goods of this world and toward our God who cares for us instead of hand-wringing and being worried about the things needed for survival, it's a life lived in peace knowing that God will provide what we need, including what we need for moral action that He has tasked us with. I think it brings a freedom to seek first God's kingdom, to seek first His righteousness, to bring that moral action into the real world. And it's an invitation from Jesus to get radical and join the resistance. So I want to close with this. Listen to the words of Christ. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. Jesus is saying, what are you looking at? What are you coveting? And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, if you're coveting those things that are not of the kingdom, if your money serves something other than God, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Brothers and sisters, we cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider what it means to be Your people in the world with respect to the good gift of money that You give us, Lord, I pray that You would bring us face to face with how You would like to use our resources, how You would like us to serve You with our money. 
Lord, I pray that this would be such a deeply freeing experience for all of us. That, Lord, this would lead us into a place of a non-anxious life, of trusting you with each of these details. So, Lord, as we earn all we can, I pray we could earn all we can. That You would give us the freedom, the capability to live a life where our abilities are serving well and we are able to gain what we need for our families and for Your kingdom. For those who are underemployed, Lord, we pray for good jobs. For those who are overworked, we pray for rest. For those whose workplaces have become a source of addiction, You would give them freedom. For those who are out of work, that Lord, you would bring them to a place of meaningful work. Lord, as we save all we can, help us to consider how we should save and for what we should save. It is good to save for our future. We're called to put things aside. To care for our family first is a moral action. To not be a burden to others is a good thing. But Lord, there are so many that need us. So how do we save in a way that we're saving for your kingdom, for our neighbors, people, and planet? And Lord, help us to give all we can. Not as a coercive way of getting more tithe for this church, but to be a people who are generous of spirit. So we give of our time, we give of our resources in a sustained way, supporting the multitude of good organizations seeking to serve you and to serve our communities. May we be known as a generous people. Wise, yes, but generous. And Lord, as we consider our money line by line in our budgets, help us to discern which master our money serves. May you give us the grace to redirect our funds as necessary. Gently convict us of those places you're calling us to submit to you. Lord, may this be a year that we get radical about money. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.